Welcome to another episode of the Souvenirs Podcast. This week we hear from third-generation ranch visitor Rob Farrow. Rob's grandparents were early homeowners at Casa de los Caballeros, the residential development that surrounds the ranch. Let's listen to Rob as he shares stories of his time at the ranch and how he almost got into the Los Caballeros mining business. Well, not really. Let's hear what he has to say. Hi, Rob. Hi, Susie. When did you first come out to the ranch? I came out to Rancho de Los Caballeros for the first time in Christmas of 1968. And maybe I should give you a little bit of background why. Uh, in the fall of 1968, my father was killed in a car crash, uh, tragically, and as a result, my grandparents and my mother, um, I think they decided, well, I know, they decided that it'd be best not to spend our first Christmas without my father in our house. I, I've got uh, two siblings. I'm the oldest of three, my brother Sandy, my youngest sister Suzanne, and my mother. So my grandparents were looking for a place that they could get away and kind of have uh, our first Christmas uh, not at home. Through, I believe it was a Stewart family, they found out about Rancho de Los Caballeros. Uh, and as a result, they ended up renting the Immobrestag house, which uh, is now gone, but it was on the South Mesa, the last house sort of on the drive. And um, that's where they uh, rented this house. As a side note, there was and probably still is a Rancho de Los Caballeros, a lot of folks from the Chicago area, particularly the North Shore of Chicago, being Winnetka and um, and Lake Forest and so forth. The Stewart family was from Lake Forest. So I think that may have been some of the way that they found out about the place. So we went out there for the first Christmas. My uncle Bill joined us, his wife, my Aunt Peggy, and uh, his uh, three boys and my grandparents and my mother and my siblings, and we had a wonderful time. We spent two weeks at the Moberstag house and um, we availed ourselves of all the great facilities at the ranch, now everything the ranch has got to offer, all the programs and so forth. And that led to uh, a second year at the ranch. So after the, the first Christmas was such a success, um, a year later, my grandparents did the same thing. And uh, again, my aunt and uncle and Cousins came out. They live in California, so it wasn't that far from them for them to travel. And we stayed at the same house again, and it worked out great. We all had a wonderful time. It was just a really neat place. And on that second trip, we ended up staking a claim right off, a mineral claim right off the ranch property. I'll tell you a little bit about that in a moment. In fact, I've got the paperwork upstairs. I should have brought it down. With, I could go over it with you in person if you but um, my grandparents uh, were uh, Mr. and Mrs. Spencer. Colonel William M. Spencer was sort of his formal name. You might find that in some of the records. My uh, grandmother was Gertrude Spencer, and they, they decided to uh, buy a lot and build a home. And right about that time, uh, Rusty Gant was subdividing, I guess it's, now it's um, a Condor Road, uh, was the first sort of subdivision of the property and Condor Road was just a, a loop uh, at that point and um, the original loop that's sort of still there and so my grandparents bought two lots and they built a home so the following Christmas which was 1970 we stayed in the home and um, they built this house uh, which is still there today which is now owned by my cousins and um uh, we had a terrific time. And that led to many, many more vacations 
uh, at Los Caballeros, Christmases, spring vacations, Thanksgiving, and it really became a very important part of our life. Uh, my grandparents uh, loved the, the place and became very involved with going there. My grandfather was retired at that point, and so they would spend the summer or the winters down in uh, Wickenburg, and then the, the the summers in Chicago. Uh, it worked out very very well. So that's sort of the history of how we first came to the ranch and um, how, we and how old up. were you at the time that you first came out? I would have been I would have been uh, nine years old. And what is your recollection of your impression of the ranch? Well, it, it was a uh, western, uh, out in the middle of nowhere, kind of a desert feeling. The the feeling of being at the ranch was um, a feeling of hospitality, of warmth. It was almost like a private club in a way. Everyone knew who we were. Um, no, there were never any chits to sign. There was mailboxes behind the front desk. And if a letter came in or a postcard, it went into one of the, the mailboxes uh, labeled for the casas, for the homes. Uh, there were no televisions on the ranch. There may have been one in the bar, but uh, no other televisions. Uh, of course, no Wi-Fi. And um, it was just a very enjoyable uh, place to stay. The staff was wonderful, warm, inviting, and um the woman who ran the dining room, I'm trying to think what her name was. She was from the East Coast. Uh, she was a dining room manager. Dorothy was her name. She was a, a very sort of professional woman uh, who ran the dining room. And as a result, a lot of the serving staff was from the East Coast, Rhode Island, I want to say, Maine, um, sort of a younger, uh, maybe college or post-college, probably post-college um, so back then, was the mail delivered to the ranch and not to the individual homes there? Oh, yeah. The, ranch, the mail was delivered to the ranch. Yeah, there was no mail service. I mean, the fact that the, I'm still blown away that there are mailboxes out in front of the houses. Yeah, that, that didn't show up till maybe, I don't know, 10 years ago or so. So uh, the mail was delivered to the ranch. However, most of the homeowners had uh, P.O. boxes down in Wickenburg. So it was pretty much a daily trip to Wickenburg to get the mail. And it was in the old post office, not the new post office, that uh, folks would go. And um, yeah, people wanted to send a letter or a postcard to their to ranch, they could. And um, there was it just end up at the front desk. So were you able to participate with the kids club? Is that what you did most of the time was the activities at the ranch? Yes. Um, we had uh, uh, two women who were the counselors. Lisa was one of them. And I can't remember who the other counselor was. They, they kind of changed from year to year. But yes, so most of our activities were in the, the, the kids program. And um, we spent a lot of time in the playground. We went riding and swimming and then we'd have lunch. And then uh, our parents would, would sort of round us up in the afternoon. You know, it was a very friendly place. So oftentimes we just walk back to the house, walk back and forth and so forth. And then we'd also have um, dinner occasionally up at the ranch. Um, lunch was usually at the ranch because that was kind of part of the kids program. But the the, the kids program, I were, and I remember there was, there was also um, dinner with, with the kids program and then post dinner activities. So oftentimes that would be up at the ranch. And there was a dining room. This is before the dining room was was enlarged and reconfigured. There was a separate sort of a private dining room with a with a door that would close a separate room, and that's where we would we would eat. But the, the dining room was towards the kitchen. 
It was a space right adjacent to the kitchen wall. There's an exit door located uh, still there today. And um, that that room was a separate room with a with fixed walls and a, a door that to go into it. And that's where we would be segregated <laughs> away from the adults so we could have our own dinner and make our own racket and all that kind of stuff. And then there were a couple of rooms, maybe it was one room that, that was uh, you know, a former guest room um, that was the, sort of the, the kids room where we do activities and so forth. And so, do you remember any of the kids back then? And did you stay in touch with them? Well, Rick Hurst was one. Um, Kathy was a little older, so she was a part of it. Yeah, there were some other guests. I have to think about their names. There was family from Los Angeles that had come back year after year. We'd see them at that time. Fred Schuster was younger, so he wasn't really a part of our, our group. Do you remember Rusty or Susie? Absolutely. Rusty was, um, well, his mother, Edie Gant, was very active in the ranch. And this, of course, her husband had passed away. is before she, she married. And Edie, if I were to describe her, is a very elegant woman. She was always um, dressed to the nines. Her hair was always done. And she was just a very graceful, elegant woman who was very friendly and warm to everyone. Rusty was a manager. And uh, he had his office behind the front desk, that little kind of room back towards the pool, I guess. And, uh, of course, we never really went into the back office. I went in there once, maybe, but um, that's where he was. And um, he was a pilot, and so he, the airstrip was active, uh, though he was really about the only plane that seemed to take off or land there that I remember. But he had his plane parked out there. He had an aircraft radio in the office. I remember that because there was an antenna on the roof, which is now gone, um, to the place he could radio into the, to the front desk if there was cattle or something on the runway. And um, the staff, as I mentioned, Dorothy was there for a number of years. There was a guy named Jay who was maybe not there in the early years, but was subsequently there in the 1970s, who was the uh, bookkeeper in the evening. Uh, the uh, head wrangler was a guy named Tommy Higgins. And uh, Tommy was there for many years. And he was a real cowboy's cowboy type of guy. Um, he was more cowboy than a hospitality uh, employee, if you think about that, is in the hospitality industry. He lived on the property, so his house is still standing, and it's out beyond the skeet range. Uh, in fact, it was called Tommy Higgins' house, uh, and he his uh, was a head wrangler, but also managed the cattle that the on the lease land that the, the ranch used to run. And then the the wranglers that were there, there was a guy. I want to say his name was Bill. And some of the other names may come may come to me. But when you were in the kids program, the riding was primarily in the ring for the new riders. The ring is still there. And then uh, additionally, there would be uh, rides that would go out. So they once you kind of graduated from the ring, you got to go out on trail rides. There were two activities that, that I recall that other ranchers would participate. One was the Gymkhana's. The other was the square dances. So the Gymkhana's, uh, they would take place at Lost Cab, at Flying E, or Remuda Ranch. And Remuda was kind of fun because you had to ride the horses sort of you know, all the way down through town. Uh, and then the square dances also would kind of rotate around the ranches. And they were always a lot of fun. Uh, that, of course, square dances happened in the evenings. And then the Gymkhana was usually once during every, every part of the season. 
Now, I mentioned we were there at Christmas time. There was some neat sort of tradition. I, I don't know if it's still going on. I hope they are at the ranch. But uh, the tradition typically was at Christmas, part of one of the traditions that I participated in a couple of times was cutting down the Christmas tree. So Rusty would take a small group of, of guests, pile into a couple of pickup trucks. We had some box lunches. We drove up towards Flagstaff and cut down a tree and load it in the back of the pickup truck and then bring it back. And of course, that would be set up in, in the uh, in the lobby. And then Christmas Eve, uh, after dinner, all the guests would gather in the living room and decorate the tree. And um, someone would be playing the piano to play Christmas carols, be kind of a sing-along piano, around the piano kind of a thing. Now, my mother or my grandfather played the piano in a musical ear. We had a piano at the house. So he, I think, was drafted to uh, play the piano for the uh, Christmas carols, which I, I think he enjoyed doing. And then when he could no longer do it, my mother was drafted to play Christmas carols. And she could also play the piano. So it seemed like no one on the staff could play the piano, at least well enough to, to do Christmas carols. So the guests were sort of, or whoever happened to be around that could bang out a few Christmas carols. would. Uh... And then the other thing it was coming to do is that instead of hanging stockings around the fireplace like you you put your boot out so all the kids would would put their one boot out around the fireplace and uh and then you know go off to bed the next day um there would be uh uh must have been a, i mean i don't really remember it must have been a meal like a brunch or something but the big event on christmas day is santa claus would arrive so he would arrive oh you know i don't know 10 o'clock or something uh, it would be on the Posse Tiempo, what time Santa Claus is going to arrive, he would arrive. And uh, one year, I remember, they actually had a, a donkey or a burrow with a big <laughs> a big uh, sack of toys on the back and saddlebags strapped to this burrow. And Santa Claus would bring the burrow right into the living room and uh, <laughs> pass out gifts. And the, um, the boots would be filled with some candy and some other little uh, trinkets and toys and so forth. And every guest got a gift, which was kind of neat. And then um, there'd be often be a horseback ride on Christmas Day and so forth. We celebrated Christmas back in the house, and then would we had our own tree and stuff. And then we would also come up to the to the ranch for those first kind of early years. Uh, and the subsequent years, we just celebrated Christmas back in the, at the house after they built their house. So that was one of my uh, memories of, of early memories of the ranch um, and Christmas and so forth. There was another um, staff member there for many years was Frank, who was a bartender. And um, he was kind of a former Marine. I assume he was a Marine because he had a Marine-style haircut. And he was kind of a tough guy. Uh, maybe he was friendly to the adults, but to the teens when we were in our teen years, he was kind of the tough guy and um, no-nonsense sort of guy. What was the guest demographic like, and did it change? The demographic was pretty much about the same. Mostly folks preface by saying I was there really most of the Christmases, pretty much every Christmas from 1968 to probably about 1981. Same with spring vacations. Pretty much every spring vacation from 1970 when they had the house to about 1980-ish. So the, the folks that I tended to see were folks that all arrived pretty much within those time periods. Um, a lot of people from the, uh, the Midwest, from Chicago area, St. Louis, L.A., the, the, everyone were pretty much the same type of folks, upscale, college-educated, um, professionals, working folks, 
uh, families. That was obviously spring vacation. You'd find a lot of families that were there. The only thing you sort of notice over time is that the styles would change, the habits would change. Uh, the dining room was coat and tie or a, a Western style vest and a bolo tie. Yeah, that sort of changed. Um, people got more dressed up for dinner than they do nowadays. But other than that, I think pretty much about the same. Are there any traditions you wish would come back? I'm kind of a traditional kind of guy. So, yeah, I, 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 the Christmas traditions I always thought were kind of neat. Uh, chopping down the tree and decorating it and the carols and so forth. The tradition of uh, formal dining, um, I thought was was a nice was a nice thing. Um, although those you have to go with the, with the change of the times. See, it'd be great to get rid of the television and the Wi-Fi, but no one's going to go along with that anymore. Yeah, you know the uh, tradition of having the names posted, uh, I thought was a really nice thing to do because you could see. You walk into the bulletin board and you can see, oh, so and so is here, and that kind of stuff. And that I thought was a neat tradition. In fact, if if, if the ranch decided to bring that back, I was just adding years. They have brought it back, yes. Oh, it, it is back now. It is back. Great, good, yeah. good, good, good. The, um, there was from time to time a social director uh, who would be there, and the, there were a couple of those over the years, and uh, they were kind of a nice. Uh, and person to have. Um, so yeah, I don't know if they're still doing things like bingo and and other you know things at night. There would be um, there's there was that was one tradition I remember a regular thing that would happen. I, I don't know if they can do this anymore. I don't think they do it, but the cookouts were a lot of fun. So there was a lunch cookout out by Vulture Peak. It's called Gobbler's Knob. No, that was not Gobbler's Knob. I'm sorry. That was a Vulture Peak. Um, cookout lunch cookout and then they used to do a evening cookout and even a breakfast cookout and that was done i believe it was called gobbler's knob and um if you know the road i mean rusty would certainly know what this is but you take the road out past what i said tommy higgins house the road to the ski shooting you, you drive keep going right on out into the desert and you take basically your first left Towards, uh, I think it's called the White Tank or whatever the the, the the cattle watering tank out there. It would be on the that dirt road, and there was an area where we do the evening cookouts. And, and if I remember, there's one breakfast cookout out there as well. On the evening cookouts, how did you get out there? You either rode in a car or you would um, ride horses, and then and the, you, it was sort of a sunset ride through the the hills and so forth, and then you'd ride down to where the cookout was taking place, and then at night. It'd be totally dark, and you'd be riding back. Now, they, there's not much of a trail riding the way back. Uh, you just kind of follow the, the road back into the ranch. But, oh, yeah, that was kind of cool. It was kind of neat. And as you spent your teen years around the ranch, tell me about that experience. First time I ever drove a car, I was 13 years old. It was a Jeep. And my grandparents rented a, a Jeep from the folks in town. There were some people that ran the... Um, it's gone now, but they ran a um, like a flower shop and a, a nursery, and they had this Jeep that we would um, we would rent. My grandparents would rent. So I learned how to drive a stick shift at age thirteen, and I used to drive it around the ranch, <laughs> and uh, drive it off the ranch, go out in the desert, go four wheeling, and that was really great. Had a lot of fun. Did that for many years. Every time I'd come back, my my grandmother would go to town to rent this Jeep again, and uh, we'd take that out four-wheeling all over the desert. So 
I started that at a relatively young age. My kids don't even know how to drive a stick shift. I was driving one at 13. And um, we also, sort of a sidebar story to this, when I was probably about 14, either my mother or my grandparents figured they needed to have some way to keep us occupied. So they, they, they found a guy in town, Willie was his name, his last name, I want to, I'm pronouncing it wrong, but it was like Hertzavina, Hertzavanga. His sister ran the, the was one of the, the counselors for the kid program. And so he got connected with my grandmother, I'm guessing, or my grandfather. And they ended up hiring him to take us out into the desert. So he had a Jeep, uh, Willie's Jeep. And um, a lot of the, my teenage memories, with my brother and my cousins, uh, would we go out with this guy um, exploring old mines? So he'd take us way out in the desert, and we'd find these old gold mines, and we'd go and check them out, and go down the shafts and stuff, and the ghost towns, and and uh, that was neat. And so we'd go out all morning, all afternoon. Yeah, you know, we'd we'd leave at at lunch, or often take lunch with us. We'd be gone pretty much all day. Come back at dark um, after exploring. We saw some pretty cool mines. That uh, that are out there that I never would have found otherwise, including I remember we crossed the Hacienda River when it was with water it was below you know the, the portion of the river that's got water flowing in it, and that was kind of neat. We did a loop starting at the ranch, went all the way out, and it ends up way south of town, across the river, which in a vehicle is a little tricky because you don't always know if you're going to get across, and uh, then got back safely. So. Um, uh, other memories of the teenage years would be playing tennis, horseback riding, tetherball. Actually, my younger was youth and played a lot of tetherball in the, the playground. Uh, getting into trouble. <laughs> in various forms of trouble around the ranch that the teenagers tend to do. Uh, How did Rusty yeah. feel about you driving the Jeep around at 13? Eh, I don't know if he really knew about that. He was always busy managing the ranch. So he never said anything. <laughs> and no one, no one else seemed to say anything either. No one really seemed to care. It, it, it was kind of nice. There are no seatbelts. If there were, we never used them. And I was a little bit more innocent time. And as long as you weren't like getting in an accident or something, uh, there really, really was not, not that not that big a deal. There's, I just have another name: the Darby family. Dave Darby. So he had a photo shop in town, a B and B photo. But uh, the Darby family had a house uh, on the Casas, um, one of the on, the on Condor Road in that in that loop. Their house was kind of up up the hill a little bit on the far side, and they were from New Jersey. And they they I believe they lived on the ranch full time, but I'm not sure about that. His dad was an interesting guy. Uh, I guess they must have lived there pretty much full time. He ended up becoming a, a deputy sheriff uh, with the. Uh, the Maricopa um, uh, posses. So you're a volunteer deputy sheriff. And uh, you oftentimes see him around the ranch with a six shooter on his hip and the uniform and the badge and all that kind of stuff. He had a, um, uh, a blazer, a K4 blazer. He put a, a Corvette engine in it. And um, he had a bunch of antennas on that thing and would be driving around. But uh, Dave, his son, who's a few years older than me, he ended up uh, moving out to Wickenburg, maybe still lives in Wickenburg, and uh, became the ranch photographer. So there was a fellow who owned the photo store in town, Slim, and I'll think of what his last name is. So there's a road named after him in Wickenburg. Oh, gosh. Anyway, it, it'll come to me. And he, um, the Photoshop that Dave 
eventually became a partner in. Uh, and he was also the ranch photographer. So he would take pictures for the Gymkhana's, for the rides, cookout rides, Christmas time. Uh, he was a great guy. And in fact, he taught me how to shoot. Uh, he also did the skeet shooting. So the skeet shooting range used to be right adjacent to the corral, right next to the corral, kind of where the, the first hole is now. Uh, in fact, the first hole is located where the skeet shooting range used to be. You'll see some of those old pictures of the ranch and you'll find them, sure, uh, where the range was. And Rusty or Slim would be kind of the staff folks that would run the skeet shooting. So he taught me how to shoot uh, skeet. And to this day, I'm still shooting skeet. Uh, that was a lot of fun. And another memory of that is I was with Rusty when he shot at 25. Uh, might have been his first 25 or his second 25. My brother and myself and Rusty were out shooting, and um, he shot a 25, So, which is that's the best you can do. If you're a skeet shooter, it's 25 out of 25. It's a perfect score. And it, it doesn't happen all that often unless you shoot an awful lot. So um, that was kind of kind of a neat thing. So one of the, going back to being a, a memory of a teenager is one of the things we I did a lot of is skeet shooting, skeet and trap. And so that that's one of the changes when they built the golf course, they moved the skeet range out to where it is now. And so you, you touched on getting into trouble. Can you share any of those stories with us, Rob? Well, we, we used to have desert parties and that was kind of fun. Um, and we did get yelled at occasionally by Rusty for that, for uh, leaving trash out there, beer cans and so forth. Uh, so the drinking age was 18 in Arizona at the time, but that didn't seem to stop us from getting beer in town. And uh, the teens would all grab some wood and head out the desert and have a fun time. That's serious trouble, just teenage mm -hmm. stuff. Were there any memorable people you encountered? Yeah, well, a celebrity, the only celebrity I can recall was one of the singers from Sha Na Na, the, uh, the music group. I think it was Bowser. I think it was Bowser was his name. Of course, there, there, were, there were rumors that other movie stars would come in from time to time from L.A. So that's the only one I remember seeing there. It, it, there were a lot of interesting people. So the, as I mentioned earlier, the guests were upscale, uh, college-educated professional folks. So there would be um, a lot of business people. Uh, Harry Combs was a neat guy. I remember meeting. He had a house out there. He um, was, I think, I want to say he was. He was either worked for Learjet or he was president of Learjet. But he started Combs Aviation, which was a um, at private airports, they have, I can't remember the exact term for them, but basically they're, they run the, the flight operations at private airports, the gas, the um, maintenance on the planes. And he had a bunch of these facilities and airports all over the West. But it was he was a really interesting guy because he'd fly his plane over the airport and he was an interesting guy. Uh, Rick Hurst's dad was Hurst Ham Beans. So they occasionally see him on television. Uh, for t television ads. Um, I'm sure there are other, Bill Mitchell, the Mitchells, was it Mitchell? I think that was her name. He was a Chicago guy, lived across the street from my grandparents. And I, I may be a little hazy on that last name. Uh, he was a, a big businessman in Chicago. Nothing, I mean, I'll probably think about more over time, but. So what do you think kept you coming back to the ranch year after year? Well, my grandparents certainly did. Um, but I, I just love the place. I, I loved it then. I loved it now. So what brings me back really is a sense of the solitude and openness and freedom that the desert provides. 
I always liked the fact that you just walk out in the desert and you wouldn't see anybody. There were no rules. There were no fences, no signs. Some of that's changed now, of course, but you could kind of do whatever you wanted to do in terms of four-wheeling or hunting or exploring or whatever it is. You're looking for fossils, looking for uh, rocks and different things. So that was one of it. The other thing is just the the hospitality and the um, facilities and the staff at the ranch. So I, I enjoyed horseback riding and tennis and all the other things, golf and so forth. It, it has been and always, hopefully always will be a first-class operation where um, you weren't surprised. Um, I mean, in a negative way, maybe in a positive way, but you, you, you knew what to expect. And when you got there, it always felt like home. For me, uh, I always... I enjoyed getting back to the ranch and walking around and exploring and talking to the staff members who I recognize and recognize me. And I think that that tradition or that feeling still continues where, as I mentioned earlier, it's, it's, it's kind of more like a club than a, uh, a hotel where I, I kind of felt like I was a member. I kind of felt like I belonged there, again, because of the familiarity with it. There are different things I like to do, like climbing Vulture Peak. I probably climbed it 25 times, sometimes uh, same time in the same trip, a couple times in the same trip. As a team, spent a lot of time hanging around the pool table at, at night during the afternoons. So tell me about that mining claim. Oh, the claim. Yeah, I should go up and get the paperwork on it. So when we were out there the first year at the Immobristag House, which I'm trying to think what golf hole might be there, might be the 16th hole maybe. In any event, that was all desert. And uh, we would often go out, my cousins and I would go exploring the desert, right? Kind of around near the house. And um, on one of our trips, we found a bunch of blue rock on the ground. My uncle had um, spent some time in his career in the mining industry. And uh, he told us what it was. It was copper ore. And we found a vein, a surface vein of copper ore. Copper ore, it looks like turquoise that kind of deep blue, and we found some veins on it and said, oh, this is really exciting. And so we decided to file a, a mining claim. And uh, I guess my uncle thought it'd be a great project to keep us young boys kind of in line with something to do. So we actually uh, staked a claim. And uh, my uncle went down to Phoenix, brought some rock down there, some samples, had it assayed, and uh, filed the claim papers. And the next year, it might have been that same year. I think this was the second year we were doing this. We filed the claim. We went back out in the desert and with the with the wooden stakes and uh, staked the ground and put the the, the papers into the, the center stake. And uh, yeah, we had a real legitimate mining claim out there. Now I don't think Rusty was very happy about that. <laughs> I think it might have been on it might have been on his property. You know, I don't really know where the property line was, or it might have been on BLM land. I'm not really sure, but. Uh, it was, um, yeah, it was now with a mining claim, you have to put in like $250 worth of work every year. I can't remember. The law may have changed that. So if you don't do that, someone can can stake, can restake, they, they can claim jump you basically, take the claim away from you. Uh, now, in reality, we were never going to set up a mining operation there, but we would go back and dig up a few holes so we could say we put in our $250 worth of work, keep the claim active. For many years, the stake was up there and the center stake was there. And the, again, the papers I have upstairs are uh, the original uh, papers notarized and stamped by Maricopa County. 
as a, a coyote claim number one um, located there right right off the uh, the golf course. Now, as a little side note story to that, my uncle ended up inheriting my uncle, my mother, and my other uncle. My mother was Suzanne Faroe, later Suzanne Garvin after she remarried after my dad died. William Spencer, Bill Spencer II, Jr., was my, my uncle. We traveled out there and spent a lot of time with those early years. And my third uncle was Ed Spencer, Edson Spencer. So after my, my grandfather passed away, my grandmother continued to go out to Arizona in the wintertime. After she passed away, the house was inherited by my two uncles and my mother. So they used the house, kind of shared it um, accordingly. And then after a few years, my uncle Ed bought out my mother and my uncle, and then he had the house. And um, that's when they, they used that for their, their winter uh, home. And uh, he, he called me one year, uh, a few years, I think, after they moved in. He was part of the Homeowner Association, and he wanted to have a little bit of fun. So he said, Rob... I want you to send me a letter saying that you're going to uh, start mining the claim and you just were letting the ranch know that you're going to be bringing in heavy equipment. And you're going to be, there might be some disruption, maybe some blasting from time to time. You'll try and keep that quiet as much as possible, but maybe some interruptions and so forth. Cause he wanted to give that letter, which he did at the, at the meeting with the homeowners to Rusty. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> Rusty may remember that. I don't know. I've got a copy of the letter upstairs somewhere. And uh, I thought that was very, very funny. So I wrote a very, a very nice letter explaining how things might be a little bit different with the heavy construction mining activity they're about to embark. Could you locate that claim today? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, sure. I know exactly where it is. Oh, yeah. The stakes are gone. The last time I went out there, because you know, after 40 years or 50 years, they fell over or whatever. I think there might have been one of them still out there, or a couple of them. So how do you think the ranch influenced you over the years? What impression did it make on you? Hmm. Well, it, it, it gave me a love of the West. Um, I always sort of had a love of the West, but that really enhanced it. And so that would be probably the biggest influence it had on me is that it really made me appreciate and love the Western United States. So much so that I ended up going to college at the University of Denver, my undergrad. And someday I hope to move out to the West. And Anne, my wife, Nan, and I have talked about Maybe we'd end up with a house out in, in Wickenburg uh, on one of the on one of the houses there at the ranch. So that was probably the biggest impact it had on my life. Uh, you know, personally, um, all the time I spent with my family, my grandparents, was very impactful because it it gave me this, an opportunity to spend a lot of time with them, you know, living in in their house for two weeks at a time at Christmas, a week at Thanksgiving, and um, I miss those times very much, and I. Uh, I wish I could have spent a lot more time with them. Now, it was a nice place to be. And their house was very nice. And um, we were well taken care of. That was certainly part of it. The ranch was great. And availing ourselves of all the nice things to do there was a wonderful uh, treat to have, certainly. What do you think the legacy of the ranch is? Well, I think the legacy is it's a uh, family-friendly, non-corporate, hospitable dude ranch, a, uh, a place where people can feel casual and comfortable and still have the Western feel to it and uh, the Western experience that um, I think people enjoy. So part of that legacy, I suppose, is, is the Gantt family. You know, Rusty certainly put his mark on the place all the years that he was there. What kind of changes did you notice in Wickenburg over the years? I would say from 1968 to probably 1978, there really wasn't much change. Not a lot of um, significant change. It was 
it was Frontier Street was very active. There were a lot of retail shops there and so forth. The, the downtown Ray Salary um, was there. Now I think it's, it's Ben Salary. The post office around the corner, American Legion was right there. Um, the hangman's tree was there. There was a um, auto auto store um, kind of next door to the hangman's tree. There was a double B photo. That was the Photoshop that Slim and, and later Dave Darby owned. The the bridge across the the highway. There was no roundabout there. That was new. There was a movie theater there. Uh, the Golden Nugget was their restaurant. There were a few taverns, but we were too young for that. The the, his, the History Museum was a lot smaller then on Frontier Street. Wickenburg Sun offices across the street and tracks. But the growth on the on the on the way towards the ranch uh, was all fairly, you know, I call it new. It was new to me. So there was a, a, a Fricks Jewelry. I can't remember it's called Fricks. Was um, one of the stores that were sort of on the way between Frontier Street and the and Vulture Mine Road uh, on the, I guess it would be on the north side of, of the street. Um, that was one of the more popular places for us to go. There was a dress shop called Las Damas. I remember that my mother and grandmother would talk about. And um, Custard's Last Stand was in town. Uh, it was an ice cream shop we'd go to. Bermuda Ranch, of course, was, was an active dude ranch. Um, the Flying E. The Wickenburg Inn, when that started, that was kind of a big deal. That was new. I call it new because it wasn't there when we first started going out there. That must have opened up in the mid-1970s. Merv Griffin, television personality, was one of the owners of that. And uh, that was kind of a big deal because it was a, a tennis ranch. Rumor has that Johnny Carson went out there to play tennis. The biggest change I've noticed over here is just the growth, the growth of Wickenburg. Uh, now, of course, with the whole new development, it's a whole nother deal. The, the growth was, it was, it was certainly with the amount of homes that was kept expanding out towards the ranch and Vulture Mine Road. The fast food restaurants that came in, they were never there. Um, the traffic increased. That was pr probably that's sort of the main things that come to mind. What is your hope for the future of Rancho de los Caballeros? My hope is that it continues on the same kind of tradition that it has. And my hope is that the new owners will, will continue to keep that tradition going instead of turning it into a Marriott or uh, another sort of institutionalized type of an experience. Nothing against the Marriott hotels. The Hyatt hotels are wonderful. And there are a lot of resorts that are, are nice. But I, I really hope that the ranch continues to keep the tradition of a family-oriented, privately owned and managed resort where the guests come first and that um, they continue to have that family sense of hospitality um, that it always has. It's, it has that sort of small feeling. And um, I think when you talk to the guests and, and look into some of the names, you'll see the, the families like the Berlins, uh, like our family, that have been coming there for decades, many, many decades, not just the homeowners, but the guests. I talked to a guy last time we were out there, uh, came out and must've been president's weekend, which we normally, normally don't do. And I talked to this guy who I'd never met before. He'd been going out there for 35 years, his family. So I hope that the, um, the ranch doesn't change to the point where families feel like, yeah, you know what, place isn't for me anymore. I understand businesses need to adapt. They need to change to make sure they always have some attraction to their marketplace. And uh, that's, of course, it needs to happen. 
But along the way, in that transformative process, I hope that the ranch doesn't lose that tradition and feel, that family warmth and family welcoming feel that it, it always has. Thank you, Rob, for sharing your stories about the ranch. This concludes another episode of the Souvenirs Podcast. We have a few more interviews to share in our summer series, so stay tuned for more stories featuring the ranch. Thanks for tuning in. Till next time. Souvenirs Podcast is produced by Susie Miner. Background music written and performed by Dick Fredrickson.